0: Hey there, welcome to Cryptic Chronicles. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the most famous unsolved murders in California history. The first I've mentioned before, the Black Dahlia murder in Los Angeles in post-World War II, 1947. Then we're going to get into the notorious Zodiac Killer, who terrorized the Bay Area in the late 60s, early 70s. Now, when talking about psychopaths, it's unavoidable the subject knocked at gruesome and pretty dark. So if you're squeamish or sensitive, here's your warning. Serial killers is a heavy subject, and I'm not going to sugarcoat stuff. Also, to those in the know, I am not claiming to have any conclusions on these criminal cases. I'm just presenting the story or big picture as best I can. I know how dedicated you sleuths are, and I bow to your investigative skills. And though I usually try to cover all sides objectively with an open mind, no matter how weird or bizarre, I'm going to stick to the more mainstream information regarding these topics. Shout out to listener Rick Holcomb, who requested the topics for this episode. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. In the last episode concerning the Cecil Hotel, I talked about how the Black Dahlia allegedly made her last stop there, just before her demise. I'll elaborate on the case now, which is one of the most notorious unsolved murders of the 20th century. It's a cold case not only shrouded in mystery, but controversy, too. Almost 70 years ago, a young aspiring actress came to LA by the name of Elizabeth Short. She was a small-town girl looking for fame and fortune in Hollywood. She would get the fame she wanted eventually, but not in a way she could have ever expected. The Black Dahlia has become a Hollywood legend in her own right. Her gruesome death became an overnight sensation across the U.S., and generated armchair investigators across the country to come up with a plethora of different unverified theories. The investigation by the Los Angeles Police Department came up with over 150 different suspects for the murder. The case was shoved to the forefront of the public eye due to the graphic and disturbing nature in which her corpse was found. It all started one cold January morning in 1947. Elizabeth Short was found close to the sidewalk in some grass, on a vacant plot in Limerick Park, California. She was surgically cut in half at the waist the two halves left in a pose by the killer. Her arms were raised above her head, and her legs spread wide. She was completely naked, but washed clean. Her skin was stark white from her body being drained of blood, and her cheeks had been sliced open in wide lacerations. The official cause of Short's death was cerebral hemorrhage from blunt trauma damage, but she had irritations around her wrist from being bound and it was judged that the young woman had been tortured for at least three days before being murdered. The place of her captivity was not the spot they found the corpse, though. It had been left there, in a spot very likely to be found quickly. Whoever had killed Elizabeth Short definitely wanted notoriety and to shock the public. The killer would go on to taunt the police, sending them cryptic messages and evidence a manner that would be later emulated by a more notorious murderer, the Zodiac Killer. Elizabeth Short was born on July 29, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. Her father was a failed businessman, and during the Depression faked his own suicide to abandon his wife and five children. So it's safe to say her early life was very chaotic and lacking a sense of stability. But there really isn't too much known about her childhood otherwise. She only went to high school for a year before dropping out, and had respiratory problems that developed into asthma as she matured. But Elizabeth would grow into a beautiful young lady. She had a flawless, pale complexion, stunning bright blue eyes, appealing bone structure, and a curvy body. She enjoyed dyeing her mousy brown hair raven black. A color she favored in her wardrobe, too. And some claim to be the reason her nickname became the Black Dahlia. But many say she only got that nickname posthumously. There was a well-known crime noir movie called the Blue Dahlia at the time. So pop culture could have inspired it, too. She would wear long black gloves, laced black flamboyant dresses, and fashionable high black boots. She moved around a lot and would become a waitress in Florida for a time in 1941. However, eventually the father that abandoned her and his family during the Depression sent a letter of apology to her mother. Reasonably, Elizabeth's mother wanted nothing to do with him, but the revelation her father was alive and faked his own suicide most likely was a profound moment in her life. In 1943, at the age of 18, Elizabeth Short moved to Vallejo, California to live with her father. Shortly after, they moved to Los Angeles together in Southern California. Sadly, her father was a garbage human being who kicked her out of his house after a disagreement and cut her off, basically abandoning her for a second time and leaving her to fend for herself on the streets. It's often said her whole motivation for coming to California was she dreamed of becoming an actress. But there's no documented acting gigs or credentials concerning her. On the streets of L.A., she was constantly broke and often had to stay in shady places with multiple women to save money. Despite this, she had a lavish nightlife. She was rarely hungry because she dated many men for free meals, a thing that could possibly have made her target because she flirted with and dated many men, but she wouldn't engage in sexual relationships. So after learning that there was no physical interest on her side, Many men just moved on considering her a tease, but Elizabeth would just move on too, going on a date with a new man almost daily. Doing this for a roof over her head or food to eat was altogether a very dangerous lifestyle, which is a shame, because if her father never kicked her out, and she had time to find steady reliable work, it's likely she would have never been in such dangerous conditions that would lead to her death. When she was 19, she was arrested for underage drinking at a bar, and this is where the legendary mugshot of hers that would be the principal photo the police and press would use was taken. Though Elizabeth Short claimed to be an aspiring actress, she more resembled a wanderer looking for a purpose, who was constantly down on her luck. Like many cultural intrigues, there's contradicting information and theories, because while there are those claiming the Cecil Hotel was her last stop before her death, others say it was the Baltimore, another haunted hotel. And still others claim the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge was the last place she was seen. But nevertheless, on the cold winter morning of July 1947, a local woman by the name of Betty Bersinger was walking with her daughter and thought she spotted an abandoned mannequin just off the sidewalk. It's no wonder since Elizabeth's already pale skin had been completely drained of blood. But upon realizing it was a cut-in-half person, Bersinger covered her daughter's eyes and ran home to call the police. There were cuts on Elizabeth's thigh, as well as her breasts, with whole pieces of flesh sliced away from her heavily mutilated body. A crowd quickly surrounded her as the police photographed the macabre crime scene. Reporters got there first, though, and the case of the Black Dahlia was born. Medical examiners came to the conclusion that she'd been dead at least ten hours before she was discovered. The autopsy report discovered more signs of torture, and indeed she'd been suffering for days. They also concluded that the cut that severed her body in half was done with great skill, which hinted that the murderer would have a medical background as a surgeon or a master butcher, or basically any of the cutting professions. Also, her anus showed signs of rape, so there was also sexual assault. The hemorrhaging in her brain that killed her was determined to be caused by the slices through her cheeks that gave her the permanent morbid smile and violent blows to her face and head. Her father refused to come identify the body, but her identity was confirmed quickly anyway through her fingerprints. The Los Angeles Times called the murder a sex-fiend slaying. At the initial investigation, a mysterious man claiming to be the murderer of the Black Dahlia called the police and told them to expect belongings of Elizabeth Short in the mail. Later, an envelope arrived at the U.S. Postal Service. The sentence, Here is Dahlia's Belongings, was formed from newspaper clippings cut and pasted to the letter. The letter had been rubbed in gasoline to dissolve any fingerprints. Inside the envelope was Elizabeth's birth certificate, an address book that contained the information of many of her boyfriends, as well as other verified personal belongings. All this basically confirmed it was directly sent by the murderer. Despite the gasoline rubbed on the letter to get rid of the fingerprints, remnants were found and sent to the lab for testing. But they were compromised and route and proved to be inconclusive. Many of the names found in Elizabeth's address book were added to the list of suspects by the police. Law enforcement would go from door to door, questioning people in the area where the corpse was found. And there wasn't a spot in the vicinity that hadn't been scoured by the police. Many of the suspects were proven innocent by the LAPD. But for each legitimate suspect they proved innocent, law enforcement time and resources were wasted by having to prove innocent and confessing to the murder. Basically people just looking for their 15 minutes of fame. Over a thousand officers, sheriffs, deputies, and California State Patrol officers searched for potential evidence all across L.A. On January 26th, a letter was received by the examiner that had been written by the killer that sent the earlier letter with Elizabeth Short's belongings in it. This time, the letter was written by hand and further taunted the police. But the killer gave a time and place he would turn himself in to law enforcement for the murder. However, at the appointed date, the killer was a no-show. Later, another letter was sent by the killer. But this time it was once again made with cut-out words from newspaper clippings and glued to the paper. It said the killer changed his mind about turning himself in. But all these letters from the killer drove the media crazy, both on a local and national scale. This would sadly lead to Elizabeth's name being dragged through the mud by some, even though the gutter press knew the truth of who Elizabeth Short was. But they could sell more of their papers and magazines if they lied about her. Some claimed that the Black Dahlia was a prostitute, or that she was pregnant, or died from an illegal abortion. There were many lies about her spread by the media across the country. Those who knew Beth, though, knew better. She's often referred to as somebody being as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. She was really just down on her luck and surviving, but the police and media had a symbiotic relationship in those days. So it's possible that some of the lies about her originated from the LAPD. They did withhold the actual cause of death from the public for quite some time, which was obviously to assist in the investigation. Based off the professional precision in which Short's body was cut in half, The police were mostly looking for suspects with medical knowledge. All main suspects who didn't have some sort of history in the medical field were quickly proven innocent. In February 1947, the police issued a warrant to the University of Southern California Medical School, but all the background checks and interviews resulted in no new suspects. The police are quoted on being frustrated on all the various dead ends in the case, and by the spring of 1947, the case was becoming cold. The public was frustrated at the LAPD's homicide department's inadequacies in solving many murder cases of the past, the Black Dahlia being just their latest failure. But there were some suspects that stood out and fit the probable killer having a background in the medical field, though a mortician or a skilled butcher could also be suspect. This included many doctors proven innocent one by one, but of the many suspects still at the top of the list till this day, George Hodel is the most likely. Dr. George Hodel gained the attention of the police in 1949, when Hodel was accused of sexual assault against his 14-year-old daughter. Three witnesses testified at the trial that they had indeed seen the man forcing himself on the girl. But the doctor was the moneymaker and supported his whole family, who didn't want to lose that money. So they testified against the girl and said she made the whole thing up. It was enough to convince the court and have him acquitted. For not only was George Hodel a wealthy doctor, but a prominent member of high-class L.A. society, and was known for throwing popular parties in his extravagant L.A. home. But his daughter's case against him put him on the suspect list. George Hodel was a genius, with an IQ of 186. He would often brag about it, saying it was a point higher than Einstein's. As a child, he was a prodigy in music and easily excelled at medical school. He even became proficient at surgery, though later focused on other medical expertise. Dr. Hodel became the leading expert for L.A.'s venereal disease clinic, running it as head doctor, and had many of L.A.'s most famous and top brass people as his clients. This made him incredibly wealthy, and a very popular socialite of the city. He lived in an extremely exotic house right in the middle of L.A., Many people said it resembled an Aztec temple more than a home. Dr. Hodel's daughter even called it a fortress from the world. He was a hard partier and a dedicated bachelor, having 11 children with five different women. Artists and Hollywood stars came to the home often for extravagant parties, and Dr. George Hodel's son, Stephen Hodel, said when he was a kid, there was always a line of pretty women waiting to see his father. Hodel was known for having incredible charm and charisma, which are common traits of sociopaths. He and his son Stephen were close until the doctor died in 1999. By then, Stephen had been an LAPD homicide detective for some time, and excelled at murder investigations. He inherited many of Dr. Hodel's belongings, one of which opened up a can of worms concerning his deceased father. A small photo album of pictures taken many decades earlier contained a picture of a woman Stephen Hodel noticed looked similar to Elizabeth short. Though experts have concluded it's only a 90-95% facial structure match of Elizabeth, so it's inconclusive if it's a real picture of her. Still, it inspired Stephen Hodel to uncover many skeletons hiding in his father's closet. In 1949, Tamar Hodel, one of the doctor's daughters, ran away from home. She opened up to the LAPD on what was going on behind the scenes in her father's bizarre L.A. residence. This is where the incest and sexual assault charges come into play that led to Dr. Hodel's arrest. Not only was he accused of forcing himself sexually on his own kid, but that he offered her sexually to many of his friends at an orgy. However, like I said earlier, he dodged these charges and walked free. During the investigation... Police got a tip that Dr. Hodel knew Elizabeth Short before she was murdered. The LAPD became so fixed on Hodel as a suspect, they bugged his home with recording devices to spy on his private conversations. And there were recordings of him that, to some, prove Hodel to be the psychopathic killer. The eavesdropping devices recorded for 24 hours a day for 40 days. And some of the recordings are pretty damning. In one such recording, Dr. Hodel says... And I quote, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. End quote. And to top that off, Dr. Hodel's secretary died in questionable circumstances, in a supposed drug overdose. Her demise was most likely the doctor taking care of loose ends. Most researchers agree that the recording is not the words of an innocent man. There were other questionable recordings of Hodel, too, but none so damning. However, despite an immense amount of evidence against Dr. Hodel, not only concerning the Black Dahlia, but other nefarious activities, too, the police all of a sudden stopped the investigation. The most probable reason for this is a cover-up. The LAPD was horribly corrupt in those days, to the point where the police were nearly as bad or worse than the criminals. Actually, the LAPD has a consistent history of corruption all the way to the present day. All the evidence that could have damned Dr. Hodell mysteriously vanished over time, to the point the recordings of him even somehow went missing, and now only exist as transcripts. No police force is that incompetent about evidence unless they're dirty. All evidence points towards a cover-up by the LAPD for Dr. Hodell, but... In those days, prominent rich socialites paying off the police for crimes they committed was common, and it wasn't the first time the doctor got away with horrendous crimes. Now, I'm not saying Dr. Hodel 100% killed the Black Dahlia, though it would be a safe bet, but it is clear the doctor had a lot to hide, and his son's investigation after his death only further proves that point. Dr. Hodel's bizarre home had a secret room that his children growing up there were not allowed to enter. It definitely has a creepy serial killer vibe about it. After George Hodel's death, his son, Stephen Hodel, was convinced his father was a murderer after his investigation. Dr. Hodel excelled at surgery during medical school and was very capable of cutting Elizabeth Short's body in half. Also, he had the secret room and secluded home to pull off the murderers easily. His son Stephen Hodell also looked at the handwritten notes the Black Dahlia killer sent to the police to taunt them and found the handwriting easily similar to his father's. Comparing pictures of the handwriting side by side, it's clear that there's a very valid similarity, though experts do have mixed opinions on the handwriting match, so it's only probable that they were written by the same person. There's also files from witnesses that Dr. Hodell and Elizabeth Short knew each other, Since murders are usually carried out by someone the victim knew, this is a clear connection. In 2012, Stephen Hodel went to his childhood home with a police dog that caught the scent of human remains. Soil samples were taken from the Hodel house to be analyzed in the lab. The soil came back 100% positive for human remains. This doesn't connect to the Black Dahlia murder, but what it does suggest is Dr. George Hodel had killed before an unknown amount of times. The home is now private property, and Stephen Hodell was denied any further investigation of the soil around the home, as well as the home itself. And the LAPD refused to acknowledge or even think about further looking into Stephen Hodell's discoveries about his father. Even though Stephen Hodell was a former homicide detective for the LAPD, and when asked about him in interviews, the police respond with overblown egos and almost vilify him. Apparently, there's unwritten rules where even if cops are corrupt, it's considered a betrayal of the force to expose them. So, Stephen Hodel is now shunned by the LAPD. Even the L.A. district attorney said, based off the results of Stephen Hodel's research, he has no second thoughts about filing two counts of murder against Dr. George Hodel. But he was only speaking for himself, not the D.A., The LAPD is still determined to keep the case closed against Hodel, most likely to cover their own butts. It's highly questionable that the case was dropped even though Hodel was such a blatant suspect, and all physical evidence against him was lost. Dozens of high-ranking investigators thought there was a cover-up, and many think it wasn't the first time Dr. Hodel had paid off the police. It looks like the case will never be reopened, though, and the truth of the matter will never be revealed. Still, though, Hodel is the likely killer, but it's not 100%. And there are other viable suspects and theories. Dr. Hodell's just my favorite suspect. And, in my opinion, the most probable. The doctor had immensely immoral habits, and, no doubt in my mind, committed many horrible crimes, whether he killed Elizabeth Short or not. I said earlier that the Zodiac Killer emulated the Black Dahlia Killer by sending letters to taunt the police. Well, if you want to get super technical, then taunting the police with letters could go back to Jack the Ripper in the 1800s. But interesting enough, there was a similar murderer that taunted the police in the same way just before Elizabeth Short's gruesome demise. This serial killer was called the Lipstick Killer, and there are those who think there's a connection to the Black Dahlia murder. The first victim was killed in 1945, then another not soon after. But this time the killer wrote on the mirror in lipstick, and I quote, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. End quote. This is how the murderer got the name the Lipstick Killer from the media. In 1946, just a year prior to the Black Dahlia case, a six-year-old girl named Suzanne Degnan was abducted in Chicago. She was strangled to death then cut into pieces and hidden in sewer drains across the city. Law enforcement were finding pieces of her for weeks. The killer made a ransom note out of cutout letters from newspapers and magazines that was extremely similar to the Black Dahlia killer's letters to the police. All the victims of the lipstick killer were women. They were all killed in different ways, and they were all washed clean in the bathtub, just like Elizabeth Short. Even LAPD Captain Donahoe openly told people he thought there was a connection between the murders. The first suspect arrested was freed shortly afterward, and given $20,000 for false arrest charges and police brutality. The second always claimed he was tortured into a confession by the police and was just a patsy. Most in the know understood that the killer was most likely never caught. Elizabeth Short's body was found next to Degnan Boulevard. The little girl murdered by the Lipstick Killer's name was Suzanne Degnan. Serial killers often have little connections like this in their murders, so it's reasonable speculation that the Lipstick Killer and the Black Dahlia Killer were in fact the same person. The corpses of the two were both drained of blood and dismembered, among many other similarities between cases, though it is possible that the two cases are just connected through coincidence or the Black Dahlia Killer could have just been inspired by the Lipstick Killer. At this point, it's unlikely we'll ever know the truth. But there are many more crazy theories about the Black Dahlia. Some even claim she had underdeveloped genitals, and the reason she didn't have sex with her many boyfriends was because she literally was incapable of having sex. Conspiracy theories can be a slippery slope, The most interesting thing about those cases are the killer's letters to the police, and that they gave law enforcement clues and evidence. They were cocky about their infamy, and toyed with the police taunting them to catch them. And they seemed to have a need to communicate with the public as well as get attention from the media. And they looked for fame in their gruesome deeds. Things that another killer of renown had too. The Zodiac Killer. We'll go into detail on the Zodiac right after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Hey listeners, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Are you interested in creating your own podcast? Well, Blueberry Hosting supports podcasters in the making. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as other podcast hubs. Don't worry about contracts or expensive fees. You have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. You won't even have to leave your website. Blueberry hosting is key to podcast success. Try it for a month free and start your own podcast today. By using the promo code CRYPTICCHRONICLES13, you can get an entire month of free service. Go to Blueberry.com, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com, to get started. And get your podcast going today. Thanks for supporting Crypto Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. The Zodiac was a serial killer who pretty much operated in the Bay Area of California. So as someone who's from the Bay Area, I find the case fascinating. Like the Lipstick Killer and the Black Dahlia Killer, the Zodiac took a lot of enjoyment in taunting police, but he took it to a more extreme level. The Zodiac sent many letters to the press with bizarre demands, bragging about his murders, and sent clues and evidence for the police. Some of these letters were cryptogram puzzles with hidden messages, and of the four cryptograms sent by the serial killer, only one has been officially solved. He would tease his possible identity, and claim to have murdered 37 people. In the letters, the Zodiac said that when he died, he'd go to paradise, and that all the people he murdered in life would serve him as his slaves in the afterlife. But despite the killer's insane claims and beliefs, he was without a doubt very smart and in the late 60s and early 70s always stayed one step ahead of police investigators. The Zodiac was never brought to justice for his murders and is still at large today, though he's more likely getting very old or even dead. But the killer's dark legacy lives on. The Zodiac has inspired many books, TV shows, and movies, and there have been three copycat killers who tried to continue his work. Maybe his killings were originally for his own twisted reasons, but eventually it became more about the publicity. The Zodiac became consumed in his dark celebrity status, and most likely really wanted to get the credit for his murders openly, though he was unwilling to give himself up purposely. Since he was never caught, there is nothing known about the Zodiac's background, and has remained an enigmatic figure in California history. There are many out there who have claimed to know the serial killer's identity. Hell, there's even a lot of people who claim it was a family member. The truth, though, is that the killer's identity is still inconclusive. Though there are a couple of pretty compelling suspects. It all started in 1968. Well, at least the first confirmed murders do. There is a connection to the murder of two high school kids in Santa Barbara in 1963 that do have Zodiac calling cards, but remain unconfirmed. And in 1966, the murder of Sherry Josephine in Riverside, California, has also been connected to him. But the first official Zodiac account takes place in 1968 in Benicia, California, just five days before Christmas. High school students David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen went on their first date to a lover's lane on a secluded road, and sadly were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not known for sure, but evidence indicates that the Zodiac most likely fired off warning shots to get the high schoolers out of the car. David was found next to the car with a bullet in his head, alive, but died shortly after. Betty seems to have attempted to run and was found dead face-first in the ground, with her back riddled with bullets. The next killing happened the following year, on July 4th. Oddly, the Zodiac attack happened in Vallejo, the same city the Black Dahlia first came to California to stay with her estranged father. Darlene Farron and Michael Magoo were driving and stopped their car in the parking lot of Rock Springs Park. Another car stopped close to them at midnight, then slowly left, only to return again minutes later. The driver got out and approached their car, shining a bright light inside, blinding the two of them from seeing him. The Zodiac opened fire at point-blank range into the car with a 9mm handgun. Michael took bullet wounds to the leg, shoulder, and jaw, but Darlene would take many more rounds that would prove fatal. The Zodiac went to a payphone, called the Vallejo police, and told the operator he wanted to report a murder. He told the operator where to find the bodies of Michael and Darlene, and claimed responsibility for the previous two murders. He talked in a low, monotone voice, then said goodbye in a really creepy way. When the two victims were found shortly afterward, they were still breathing. But Darlene died, sadly, just when they reached the hospital. Michael, on the other hand, survived. However, despite the Zodiac calling the police from a payphone, law enforcement couldn't come up with any viable leads or suspects. But the infamous taunting of police through letters would shortly follow. On July 31st, the Vallejo Times-Herald received a letter from the Zodiac admitting to the murders. The police knew it was legitimate, because the letter contained information only the killer and law enforcement could have known, including the brand of bullets, the type of weapon, and how many times he shot the victims. He sent out three almost identical letters, each with one-third of a cryptograph cipher puzzle the Zodiac demanded that his letters and ciphers would be published in the press. At first, only one obeyed the publication demand, but soon afterward, many more would release the documents to the public, and the media frenzy of the Zodiac killer began. In a letter to the San Francisco Examiner, the Zodiac gave threats to murder again if his ciphers were not properly published on the front page of the newspapers, and if the three press outlets didn't comply, he'd go on a murder spree. They all obeyed the serial killer's demands. The first code was figured out by two high school teachers in the span of a week. In the decoded cryptograph from the killer, he didn't reveal his identity or any real clues to be used against him. Instead, it opened up a window into the Zodiac's twisted mind. This is when he claimed that all those who he murdered became slaves of his and would serve him in the afterlife. He also said in it, and I quote, I like killing people because it's so much fun. But before the day the cipher was cracked, they received a new letter from the killer. In it, he gave more details about the murders, proving beyond a doubt to the police that indeed the letter writer was the murderer. And it's in this letter that the killer first referred to himself as the Zodiac. Then the Zodiac decided it was time to take a break from writing letters to the press and get killin' again. His next murder would take place in Napa, California. Brian Hartnell, age 20, and Cecilia Shepard, age 22, were on a picnic date at Lake Berryessa. It was a beautiful day and the young couple were enjoying nature. The date was interrupted when Cecilia got creeped out when she noticed a man watching them from the distance. But the man vanished shortly after. The two lounged at the lakeside a while longer before something right out of a slasher movie happened. A man in an executioner-style hood surprised them, seeming to come out of nowhere. Aviator-type sunglasses were over the hood's eye slits, and the killer's signature cross and circle insignia was on the part of the hood that draped over his chest. He approached them with a pistol raised, and a long knife was at his hip. Threatening the couple with his gun, the Zodiac tied up his victims with pre-cut rope, rendering the two defenseless. But this time, he switched up his method of killing. "'stabbing Brian in the back a total of six times. "'The whole time, Cecilia could only look on in horror "'as the Zodiac was stabbing her boyfriend over and over. "'When the killer turned to her, "'all she could do was struggle in her bondage "'as the serial killer stabbed her a total of ten times. "'After he was done with his victims, "'he carved the Zodiac insignia onto the door of Brian's car, "'then carved the dates of his previous murders "'as well as his latest.' and made sure to note the murder weapon this time as a knife. Then he called the Napa police, directing them to the location of the crime scene, and confessed he was the one who was responsible. The call was traced to a car wash in Napa, but nothing more came of it. You might be wondering how all of this is known if he killed Cecilia and Brian. Well, Cecilia did die, but somehow Brian survived the multiple stab wounds. He gave the Napa police a full description of the Zodiac in his executioner's hood as well as everything that happened. Almost a week later in San Francisco, the Zodiac further changed his attack pattern by getting a ride from a 29-year-old cab driver named Paul Stein. Then the Zodiac shot Stein in the back of the head. When the San Francisco police were informed of the crime, there was a miscommunication or some kind of mistake, because the suspect was reported as a black man. This was eventually corrected, but the early responding cops were still misinformed. Near the crime scene, they came across a man who perfectly resembled the description of the Zodiac killer, but looking for a black man, and unaware of any connection to the Zodiac murders, they let the serial killer walk free, and he vanished from sight after entering a nearby park. The police discovered a piece of the victim's shirt had been ripped off and taken. There were bloody gloves left behind. And there was a bloody fingerprint, though the fingerprint was just to taunt the police because the person who left it had covered his fingers in glue. So, the results of a match were inconclusive. At first, the cab driver's murder was considered a routine robbery. That is, until the San Francisco Chronicler received a letter from the Zodiac killer. In the letter, he said he was responsible for the cab driver's murder. The Zodiac also sent the bloody piece of the cab driver's shirt he took with him from the crime scene. He also insulted the police for letting him walk away, and that they should have searched the park he walked into thoroughly. He then threatened to kill a school bus full of children, saying they would be an easy target. All he had to do was shoot out a tire and then shoot them one by one as they came out, which is a sick thing to say. Then a month later, the Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac. It had a bizarre, humorous greeting card and cryptic hints towards more undiscovered or unidentified victims. The Zodiac sent many letters to the press at this time. Drawings of homemade bomb schematics greatly worried police. And in a letter to a famous attorney, the killer said, and I quote, Please help me. I cannot remain in control for much longer. End quote. Later that year in March, Kathleen Jones got in her car with her baby daughter. Kathleen was also seven months pregnant at the time. She was going to go visit her sick mom in Petaluma, California. But the Zodiac had other plans for her. Close to Modesto on Highway 132, a car pulled up beside hers and signaled for her to pull over to the side of the road. She did so. The strange man told her the back wheel on her car was loose, but promised he could fix it. Though he just loosened the lug nuts. And when Kathleen tried to drive away... Her wheel fell off, stranding her and her baby. The Zodiac then offered Kathleen and her daughter a ride to a gas station. She agreed and got into the man's car, but it quickly became clear she made a mistake. During the ride, the Zodiac passed many gas stations, but refused to stop. Then he started to make threats towards Kathleen, saying things like she was next, and he was going to kill her, then throw her infant baby out the window. But when he came to a freeway, he accidentally entered the wrong way, slowing down greatly to turn around. Kathleen was smart, though, and jumped out of the car with her baby when it slowed down. Being out in the middle of nowhere, she ran out into a field to hide. The Zodiac searched for her with a bright flashlight, but after a while, he gave up, thinking she got away. Kathleen then hitched a ride straight to the closest police station. She identified the man as the Zodiac killer from the famous police sketch. When law enforcement found her car, it was wrecked and had been torched. But pregnant Kathleen and her baby would be okay. She survived an encounter with the Zodiac Killer. Now, there's contradicting accounts of this incident, so I just went with the more interesting account. Overall, what happened, though, is consistent. Kathleen's quick thinking definitely saved her and her baby daughter's life. Later, the Zodiac would write a letter to the press talking about a rather interesting ride with a woman and her baby. He would then continue to write letters to the press for the rest of 1970. He sent another cipher with diagrams of bombs designed to kill children on school buses. Then, in another letter, demanded his bomb threats be published to the public, and insisted that people in San Francisco wear pins of the Zodiac's personal symbol, the cross and circle. In June 1970, the San Francisco chronicler received a letter from him that contained a map of the Bay Area and another cryptogram code to decipher the locations of bombs the serial killer planted. Also in the letter, the Zodiac had claimed to kill again, but no connections were made to his case by any of the new murders in the city. More letters from the killer would follow. In one, the Zodiac said he was upset because he didn't see anyone wearing the pins of the circle cross he asked people to wear, then claimed responsibility for shooting a man in his car as retaliation. It's likely he was referring to the murder of a police sergeant just a week prior. The man was shot in the head in his squad car when he was riding a parking ticket. Like many of his claimed kills in his letters, the Zodiac was never directly connected to the murder through evidence other than his claim it was him. It's likely he did it, just like the others. But it's never been proven. And the bombs the Zodiac left clues to find in his letter was never found either. Though, like usual, more letters to the press would follow. In his insane rantings, the serial killer talked about how he was making a list, and of the ways he planned to torture his slaves in paradise. And he even signed one letter with his typical cross and circle calling card, but written in blood. Though the identity of that person's blood has never been confirmed. Close to Halloween in 1970, Paul Avery, a reporter for the Chronicle who had been covering the Zodiac for quite some time, received a Halloween card from the killer. The letter's message was made with cut-out and glued-on letters from an edition of the Chronicle, pretty much in the same style as the Lipstick Killer and the Black Dahlia Killer. It said, "Peekaboo, you are doomed, then was signed with a Z in his typical cross and circle symbol. The threat to the reporter was taken very seriously by law enforcement and had the publicity of a front-page story in the San Francisco Chronicler. Shortly after, the reporter got an anonymous letter that showed the similarities between the Zodiac murders and the unsolved murder of 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside, California, back in 1966. In that case, the girl was brutally murdered. Then the killer wrote letters to the police telling things about the murder only the killer would know, and took full responsibility for the girl's death. Basically, the Zodiac killer's M.O., The reporter concluded his findings, but no official connection was made to the Zodiac from a lack of evidence. Many believe he did commit the Riverside murder. In March 1971, the reporter, Paul Avery, again received a letter from the Zodiac addressed to him. The writer claimed responsibility for the disappearance of Donna Lass from Lake Tahoe, California. The words were made from a collage of advertisements and magazine letters again. In the letter, the writer claimed to be seeking victim number 12 and was signed with the Zodiac's cross-circle. Again, however, there wasn't enough definitive evidence to connect the Zodiac to the murder. The following year, the Vallejo Times-Herald covered a story concerning an attack in Santa Barbara with possible connections to the Zodiac. In 1963, a young high school couple were shot to death on a beach. They were bound in a similar fashion to the Zodiac's attack of the couple in Lake Berryessa, except they somehow escaped their bonds and were gunned down when they made a run for it. The killer then placed the bodies in his shack and attempted to burn it down, but failed. Again, there was not enough evidence to officially pin the murder on the Zodiac, but the similarities made many think the 1963 Santa Barbara murders were early kills of the Zodiac, back when he was an amateur. Then the Zodiac killer suddenly went silent for three years, not committing any new murders or writing letters to the press. In 1974, the Chronicle received the final letter confirmed to be the Zodiac Killer, and oddly enough, it was a movie review of The Exorcist. In the letter, he called it, and I quote, the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen, end quote. He signed with the Circle Cross, then left a score saying me, 37, San Francisco Police Department, zero. It was a final taunt claiming to have killed 37 victims and the police had zero evidence against him. This was the last confirmed letter from the Zodiac, though there would be more with questionable origin, and it's pretty much universally agreed upon that any letters from the Zodiac from that point on were written by copycats. But in the years that followed, the Zodiac's dark legacy only grew exponentially. There were many suspects on who the police thought could be the killer. There were also many who claimed to be the child or stepchild of the killer to the point of ridiculousness. Over the years since the Zodiac went silent, there have been tons of people claiming the Zodiac was their neighbor or the creepy teacher from here or there. It's a shame so many people would risk murder victims never receiving justice by lying about the case. Basically just simply to get 15 minutes of fame. Honestly, a lot of the claims are cringeworthy and make it hard not to roll your eyes when reading them. It's almost as bad as the Black Dahlia murder where there were tons of false confessions causing the police to waste resources and time by proving innocent people innocent. The prime suspect was a man named Arthur Lee Allen. The main reason for this is on the day of the Lake Berryessa attack in Napa, California, Allen told his family members he was going to take a trip to the lake to go scuba diving. That night he returned home with blood on him, and in the front seat of his car was a knife covered in blood. Someone who saw this phoned the police to give them an anonymous tip. Alan admitted that he told his family he was going to bury Essa, but said that he changed his mind. About the blood and knife, Alan claimed he killed a chicken for dinner and just hadn't cleaned the blade off yet. Then a friend told police that Alan had referred to himself as the Zodiac long before the name was released to the public. The friend even claimed that Alan told him about how he would go about killing people, which mirrored the Zodiac. When questioned by the police, Alan had some strange responses. Like, talking about the most dangerous game, which is a book and movie about a corrupt count who would hunt other human beings for sport. The saying, the most dangerous game, also appears in code in one of the cryptograph ciphers sent by the Zodiac to the media. He fit the bill quite well. Alan had a far above average IQ. He was in his 30s and had a love for firearms as well as dark and twisted things. It was all more than enough for a search warrant, and when investigators looked through his home, there was even more evidence giving credibility to him being the Zodiac. There were mutilated animals in his freezer, knives with dried blood on them, as well as a lot of other weird stuff I won't get into. However, they could find no evidence that directly linked Alan to any of the Zodiac murders, Also, the remnant of the killer's fingerprint left at the cab driver's murder in San Francisco didn't even closely match Allen's. And when experts in handwriting analysis compared Allen's handwriting with the Zodiac's letters, they didn't even come close to being a match. A DNA comparison with modern tech in 2002 compared Allen's DNA with DNA found on a stamp from one of the Zodiac's letters, but it didn't match too but there are people who still consider him the prime suspect, even though he's been officially cleared of suspicion by law enforcement. This is because from 1971 to 1974, when the Zodiac vanished for a while, Allen was in prison from an unrelated case of child molestation. Also, one of the survivors of the Zodiac attacks, Michael Magoo, pointed to Allen when given pictures of suspects by the police. Officially, though, Arthur Lee Allen was a sick individual that no doubt committed crimes no one found out about, but he was not the Zodiac Killer. Allen died from heart disease in 1992. The next main suspect is Jack Terrence. Now, this is one of those many pointing fingers at a family member for 15 minutes of fame situations, but this one actually has some objective evidence to back it up. The stepson of Jack Torrance, a man by the name of Dennis Kaufman, had many incriminating pieces of evidence that he presented before law enforcement. Jack looks extremely similar to the police sketch of the Zodiac Killer. When Dennis was growing up, Jack gave him a gun and told him not to come back until he killed something. There were countless other questionable occurrences in their relationship that strongly hint at Jack Torrance being a disturbed sociopath. Kaufman handed over undeveloped film belonging to his stepfather, which contained images of mutilated people. He handed over a bloody knife, the blood so old it had become crusty on the blade. There was also a recorded phone conversation where Jack Torrance subtly hints at himself being the Zodiac. But the greatest piece of evidence turned over was an executioner's hood with the Zodiac's circle and cross symbol at the chest, almost exactly the same as described by the survivor of the Lake Berryessa attack in Napa, California. Kaufman received a lot of publicity from his claims that his stepfather was the Zodiac killer, but law enforcement and the FBI have concluded that the case against Jack Torrance is nonsense. The police allegedly had the Zodiac's DNA. All tests by the FBI are inconclusive. The images have been proposed as fake, and the executionerhood is much more crude than its description from the survivor of the attack. Much of the evidence is possible forgery. So, though still intriguing, it's highly likely Jack Torrance is not the Zodiac. He died back in 2006. The next major suspect is Earl Van Best Jr. In 2014, a man named Gary Stewart was another person who claimed their father was the Zodiac. He wrote a book called The Most Dangerous Animal of All, and also received a bunch of attention from the media. Earl Van Best Jr. also immensely resembled the police sketch of the Zodiac, and lived in the area during the time of the murders. He had an interest in cryptograph cipher puzzles, was associated with a Satanist, as well as a member of the Manson family cult, who's famous for their grisly Hollywood murders. Earl Van Best Jr.'s name was also found in one of the cipher puzzles. The reporter Paul Avery, who was threatened by the Zodiac, had written articles on Earl Van Best Jr. for committing statutory rape, so there was definitely a grudge motive against the reporter. And the handwriting on his marriage certificate was confirmed by handwriting experts to be a match for the Zodiac. There was other evidence presented in the book, but I'll stop there. Because no sooner did Stewart's book come out than its claims were proven wrong by experts. In fact, almost all of Stewart's evidence was dismissed. Masters of cryptographic deciphering concluded that the way he deciphered the cryptographic codes were inept and highly questionable. Also, the fingerprints were wrong, and the handwriting supposedly confirmed to match the Zodiacs on the marriage license wasn't even written by Earl Van Best Jr. It was written by the minister who married them, and though he greatly resembled the police sketch of the Zodiac, what most people don't realize is the look of a crew cut with horn-rimmed glasses was common in those days, and really doesn't amount to too much as evidence for the Zodiac Killer case. The man died in 1984, so we'll never know his thoughts on his son claiming him to be a serial killer. Donald Lee Buhawk is the next prime suspect. According to Brian Hartnell, who survived the stab wounds during the Lickberry-Essa attack, The Zodiac allegedly told him he escaped from a prison in Montana, a handful of states away. A circumstantial case formed around Donald Buhawk because he was released from prison in Montana the year the killings began. Fellow inmates of his claimed he talked about killing people to turn them into slaves to serve him in the afterlife, just like the Zodiac told the press. He'd also been dismissed from the army due to mental health issues, and all around could have easily stepped into the shoes of the Zodiac. But this case, too, runs into a wall. His fingerprint was wrong, and a park ranger said Brian Hartnell originally said the killer told him the prison was in Colorado, not Montana. So the story had been altered, if this is correct. Probably not on purpose by the victim, though. Also, Donald Buhawk had only been released three days before the first murders in 1968. Researchers have concluded him traveling across three states in the span of three days highly unlikely. Buhawk was also in prison when the Zodiac's early, unconfirmed kills happened. Donald Lee Buhawk died in 1993. The next suspect is Ross Sullivan. Now, the Riverside murder of Sherry Bates in 1966 is often thought of as an early kill of the Zodiac. Well, Ross Sullivan worked where Nair Bates' body had been found, and he creeped out co-workers vanishing for days right after the murder, which was very suspicious. He also had the crew cut with rimmed glasses, resembling the police sketch of the Zodiac. Around 1967, Sullivan moved to the Bay Area. Perfect timing for the first confirmed Zodiac murders, so there was a lot that led to him being suspected. Sullivan had even been hospitalized for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia many times. He also wore military boots like the ones that left footprints at the Berryessa attack. But Sullivan, too, was dismissed because of a lack of evidence. There's also a lot of other suspects, like Lawrence Kane, Richard Marshall, Louis Myers, Richard Gagowski, and many more. The thing they all have in common is that they all have evidence that leads to them not being the Zodiac Killer. But who knows? I'm not claiming to have any conclusions. The Zodiac wasn't worried about future science leading to his conviction. He was worried about fingerprints and other things of the day that could lead to his arrest. But DNA was not on his mind. The Zodiac licked the stamps of his letters, so law enforcement has proved suspects innocent with new technology. And the good thing about the future of this case is that it is still possible to discover the true identity of the Zodiac. New doors open as technology advances. The twisted legacy of the Zodiac also inspired other psychopaths to emulate his work. There have been up to three copycats, and only two of them were caught. Alberto Seda is one of them. His nickname was the New York Zodiac Killer. He shot ten people, but only three actually died from his attacks. He targeted his victims based off their Zodiac signs. Herberto Seda was only caught after attempting to kill his own sister. She survived, and the copycat killer is currently in prison. The next murderer that emulated the Zodiac was Saito Sakagabara in Japan. He killed two children, a boy and a girl. When he was caught, he was only 14. Saito claimed to have assaulted three other girls, but there was never any connection found through evidence. One of the most interesting things about the Zodiac Killer case is the conspiracies surrounding it. Police cover-ups and real conspiracies have happened objectively throughout humankind's history, after all. One such conspiracy is that the Zodiac Killer was connected to the Manson family. There's also the crazy theory that the Republican presidential candidate Ted Cruz is the notorious Zodiac killer. One thing that helped this theory along is that when accused of being the serial killer, Ted Cruz has never denied it, which is hilarious. Because Ted Cruz was born in Canada, and hadn't even been born yet when the Zodiac started his killings. And funny enough, Ted Cruz has cracked jokes about it on Twitter, which only egged on conspiracy theorists who insist he's the murderer as even those who claim the Zodiac has connections to clandestine occult knowledge. And it's also important to remember that not all of the Zodiac's cryptographic puzzles have been solved. The first one may have been cracked in a week by two high school teachers, but the others remain enigmatic. In 2011, Corey Starloper solved one of the decades-old ciphers, which go into detail of the Zodiac talking about how he can't control himself, and to help him. In 2014, another person named Tony Polito claimed to decipher one of the cryptographs, which goes to show you how popular the case is even to this day. Despite this, though, the ciphers are still officially unsolved other than a couple. And there's even more parts of this case that supposedly aren't as concrete as we're led to believe. Tom Void is the webmaster of ZodiacKiller.com. It's a website dedicated to the case and all new developments for over 15 years. If you're interested in exploring the Zodiac further, I highly recommend this site. It's where I got a lot of info from. It's easily the best resource of information concerning the Zodiac. On the site, Tom Voigt concluded that the DNA taken from the letters sent by the Zodiac is compromised. The DNA from the envelope was taken from behind the stamp, a spot where many people's DNA could have been left during the letters' travel. Voigt got the tip from a retired San Francisco police inspector. Then asked the doctor who collected the DNA about it, and it was confirmed. Which puts the innocence of all the suspects I just talked about through DNA testing into question. The DNA from the envelopes could be useless. But there is a chance it is legitimately the Zodiac killers. So even till this day, a lot of the stuff the mainstream says about the Zodiac isn't as factual as they make it out to be. There's no doubt he was smart. Little ironies are common in his letters. The ciphers contained purposeful misspelling, which was the opposite of the killer's intellect. It seemed like the Zodiac knew just what to say to manipulate law enforcement, be it threat or lie. His murderers weren't as sadistic as other serial killers, preferring mostly just to shoot his victims with a gun. He didn't rape or torture them. Also, he really didn't psychologically torment the victims with fear like many serial killers do. The Zodiac was highly egotistical and the mass publicity he obtained from his murders most likely became his obsession more so than the murders themselves. The media and law enforcement had never dealt with a killer so intent on communication, taunting, and purposely leaving clues. Though in the past, Jack the Ripper, the Lipstick Killer, and the Black Dahlia Killer all sent letters and gave clues to the police, it had never been to the extreme the Zodiac did. And it's likely he was emulating these past killers. The Zodiac hunted humans for sport, considering the cat-and-mouse game with police to be a real outdoor game of chess. But he almost seemed to want to be caught, so he could bask in his newfound celebrity status. He wanted the notoriety, and for his real name to be attached to the Zodiac's dark legacy. But the police couldn't catch him. Or there was a cover-up. It's been almost 40 years, and become one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history kept alive by amateur sleuths obsessed with finding a conclusion. It's one of the few cases amateur investigators have had a huge influence over. They are why the Zodiac Killer case in the Bay Area is still open in the first place. But it's also led to nutcases and researchers with tunnel vision. There's just as much garbage on the subject as there is legitimate information. Crackpot theories are a dime a dozen. There is still the possibility the case will be solved as we move into the 21st century. As technology advances, so does law enforcement's ability to solve crimes. And though many of the suspects are dead, samples of their DNA have been preserved. So the investigation of professionals and amateurs don't look like they're going to slow down anytime soon. These days, it's most likely the Zodiac's dead, or very old. The Zodiac killer could be anybody, and it's possible he's still out there. That's it for today's episode. If you liked it, please give us a good review on iTunes. Your support will help grow the show. Though, there will always be free episodes. The cost to make them is substantial. Your help will keep the show running smoothly and consistently. Please visit crypticchroniclespodcast.com for full content. Check out the Chronicle's Vault to unlock all episodes of the show. Or email us to tell us your ideas, what you think on today's topics, or anything really. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles.